I would take more if I had daycare or someone to watch the children. But, you know, there's a, a need. For Alaska's foster families, the shortage of available childcare is hitting especially hard. From Alaska Public Media, this is Statewide News on Alaska News Nightly for Friday, August 18th. Good evening, I'm Casey Grove. Also tonight, Sitka State Senator Bert Stedman shares a warning about the permanent fund. Most people didn't want to hear it. People in the financial arena recognized the fire alarm was starting to ring. Those stories and more tonight on Alaska News Nightly. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. You know that eating fruits and vegetables supports good health. But did you also know that frozen and canned produce offers the same health benefits as fresh? It's true. Whether fresh, frozen, canned, or from the land, eating fruits and veggies can lead to a long and healthy life. So when it comes to getting the fruits and veggies you need to stay healthy, remember, every bite counts. This message sponsored by SNAP. Alaska's foster care system has been struggling for years, and a lack of child care in the state is making matters worse. As Alaska Public Media's Wesley Early reports, foster parents often get little notice before they receive a child, and rising prices and limited availability can make finding care for them next to impossible. Anchorage resident Lou Lacanti has been a foster parent for 13 years. She's taken in over 40 children and even adopted three of them. Now she's up against Alaska's child care shortage. I would take more if I had daycare or someone to watch the children. But, you know, there's an, a need. Canty works full-time and recently had two babies placed with her, but she couldn't find them a spot in any child care facility. I had two um, newborn babies and... Um, it was a hard, difficult process because there was no openings for newborns in the daycares. Eventually, I had to find another placement with someone who could take take the children. Canty's not alone. For the shrinking number of Alaska foster parents, finding childcare has become more and more difficult, especially for working foster parents. There are long wait lists to get into many childcare facilities, and foster parents can't wait months for a spot. Eileen McInnes is the director of the Alaska Center for Resource Families, which helps recruit and train foster parents. She says sometimes foster parents will get a placement on a Friday and need to find child care by Monday. A lot of families can anticipate that they need child care because of summer, because of starting to work, coming back from maternity care. But oftentimes foster care placements happen on an emergency basis. McInnes says another issue has to do with high rates of trauma among foster children. She says it can be difficult to find child care centers equipped with trauma-informed staff. Sometimes in child care, that behavior that might be indicative of coming from a place of trauma might be something that um, causes you to get kicked out of child care. Um, and then the foster family, again, has to find a place that can be responsive to that child. Child care is also expensive, with the cheapest options often starting at around $1,000 a month per child. Foster parents receive about $26 a day for children under the age of five. Canty, the Anchorage foster parent, says there are stipends from the state to help with the cost of child care, but they only range between seven and $800. So when you add in Pampers, and then you can get some assistance with formula, but it's not going to, it's like a, 
it's a resource, but it's, you're still going to end up having to buy more cans of formula and um, diapers and paying for the extra daycare. State Office of Children's Services Director Kim Gawe says the COVID-19 pandemic had already strained the state's foster care system, resulting in a decline in the number of foster parents to watch Alaska's roughly 2,600 foster children. She says a lack of child care is making it even worse. It's a pretty big problem, and I think it's making it it's exacerbating the fact that people don't want to become foster parents. She says it's even more difficult to find quality child care in rural parts of Alaska. You have aunties and uncles and grandparents that could step in and provide some of that care, um, but they don't have any of the facilities. And sometimes they're not living in their uh, hub communities where their family is. She says OCS has worked on some solutions, like increasing the stipends families get for children with behavioral or mental health needs, but there's no easy fix. I don't know the answer to, like, how do we solve this? Who's got the funding for it? Um, yeah. So that I definitely worry about. There are also regulations in place for foster children since they are wards of the state. Melrina Daniel, who's fostered more than 60 children in her five years as a foster parent in Anchorage, says OCS requires that anyone watching a foster child has to have a background check and have fingerprints on file, even if they're only watching them for a short time period. Let's just say I have an emergency with one kid and I have to take that kid to um, the hospital or to the doctor. I can't leave that child with, let's say, my mom, right, who's retired and she's home because she doesn't have a background check and she doesn't have a fingerprint and she's not registered with OCS. And so then you have another layer of, oh, my God, what am I going to do now? Daniel helps foster families who need somebody to temporarily watch the children in their care. But the state has seen a decline in the number of people approved to provide that kind of respite care. As a way to help solve the child care crisis that foster families face, Daniel is currently working to set up her own child care facility specifically for foster children. My home is already set up because I do foster care, right? And so I have a designated play area, just an entire family room that's just designated for the kids. And so it was easy for me to just transform that into an in-home daycare. She says she's hoping to start up in the next three months, but as one caregiver, she'd only be able to watch up to 10 kids, depending on their age. And the need is so big. Daniel says she'd love to see grants from the state to help other people trying to set up childcare facilities. She also thinks OCS could take a larger role in setting up similar programs. Reporting in Anchorage, I'm Wesley Early. Sitka Senator Bert Stedman says that the legislature will not allow the earnings reserve of the Alaska Permanent Fund to run dry over the next four years, which would mean no annual dividend check for residents. Nevertheless, the Sitka Republican and co-chair of the Senate Finance Committee says there is an alarm bell ringing and legislators are going to have to make some tough and possibly unpopular decisions to keep the permanent fund healthy. KCAW's Robert Woolsey reports. There was concern over the permanent fund earnings reserve, which is the portion of the fund available to both pay for government services and pay dividends to residents during the regular legislative session this spring. But with so many other bills and hearings in play, it didn't get much notice. Then in July, at the quarterly meeting of the Alaska Permanent Fund Board of Trustees, CEO Devin Mitchell reported that even with relatively favorable investment returns, the spendable portion of the fund would be exhausted by the summer of 2027. Most people didn't want to hear it. 
people in the financial arena recognized the fire alarm was starting to ring. Sitka Senator Bert Stedman has served in the legislature for 20 years. A private capital manager before entering state politics, Stedman was appointed by then-Governor Frank Murkowski because of his financial acumen. He is an ardent conservative in the original sense of that word. He is not going to spend down the permanent fund, the state's $80 billion oil wealth nest egg, to resolve short-term budget problems or to placate the constituencies of newer members who've been promised unrealistically large dividends. But he's only one legislator among 60. Not everyone in the Capitol or in the governor's office is on the same page. If the legislature goes haywire and does all these overdraws and these um, starts pulling out, you know, $2.8 billion for dividends, um, you know, the House will be on financial fire and it won't be easy to put out. So that was one of the big driving factors why the Senate refused to overdraw the permanent fund, refused to do a large dividend. It wasn't because we don't want to pay out things that are popular and the people want. Is sometimes there's just financial necessity. You have to deal with it, just like a, your personal checkbook. You know, there's sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. That means limiting the size of permanent fund dividends. For the last half dozen years, the legislature has put 5% of the permanent fund's market value into the earnings reserve where it can be spent. The governor has argued for a 50-50 split of the earnings reserve between dividends and state government. The Senate disagreed and passed a dividend calculated on just a quarter of the earnings reserve, which would still come to about $1,300 for every Alaska resident. The House hasn't accepted the new split yet, so other measures were enacted to keep the earnings reserve afloat, such as cutting corners on inflation-proofing the permanent fund itself. Any other year, the legislature would have returned over $4 billion to the fund's main account. This year, that didn't happen. I think we put in a little over a billion, holding back some liquidity. We can do the same thing next year. In their calculations, they look at fully funding the uh, inflation-proofing. We could skip it for a year or two if we had to or reduce it like we did this year to keep the dividend stream going and then pick it up when the markets become more robust. Um, But what you can't do is start overdrawing the permanent fund. There is another strategy that's gaining momentum in the legislature, which would end the fight over the earnings reserve, and that's ending the earnings reserve itself. Instead of two accounts, just have the main permanent fund account and set a hard cap in the Constitution on withdrawals, which would prevent future legislatures from spending it all away. Stedman is a fan. Yes, no doubt about it. And that would protect the permanent fund, except if there's a super need where you had to go to the public and they'd have to vote to take it out, which would people would if we had a big earthquake or some really nasty disaster. But other than that, I don't think they would. And uh, that would force the legislature and the administration and the entire state to live with a 5% range. But it takes a constitutional amendment. Stedman considers the Alaska Permanent Fund on scale to be one of the largest sovereign wealth funds in the world. Norway and Saudi Arabia have more money, but they have far more people. He'd rather have the Permanent Fund last in perpetuity and not be exhausted in a generation or two, even if that means a lower dividend check. As co-chair of the Senate Finance Committee and in charge of the state's operating budget, he's got a lot of leverage to help other legislators see things his way. But he's also got two decades in the Senate under his belt, 
and he understands the price of looking the other way when the alarm bell rings. I guess it comes with the territory and experience. Some people can see a collision coming and some people can't. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. Still to come on Alaska News Nightly, federal funding will help Alaska tribes and museums retrieve indigenous artifacts. Housing some of these items isn't morally correct. So we're seeing more work with the tribes in trying to get the artifacts back. That's ahead. Stay with us. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by... Alaska Air Cargo, providing Gold Streak Express shipping for urgent deliveries throughout Alaska, with connections to more than 100 destinations in the lower 48 and Hawaii. More at alaskacargo.com. And by... The law firm of Landy Bennett Blumstein, attorneys who know the people, businesses, tribes, and communities of Alaska. Landy Bennett Blumstein, online at lbblawyers.com. There's been no word yet about whether Denali National Park and Preserve Mountaineering Rangers have figured out a way to reach the site where a small plane with two aboard crashed last week. The pilot and passenger are presumed to have died in the wreck, but so far rangers have not been able to get down into the crash site located in a steep ravine in the southwest corner of the park. The rangers tried again Thursday to access the site where the Piper PA-18 Super Cub went down so they can recover the victims' bodies and to enable National Transportation Safety Board investigators to check out the aircraft wreckage. A park spokesperson said in an email Thursday that rangers were scouting around in the ravine off the west fork of the Yentna River, looking for possible routes they could take for a ground recovery operation. Denali officials last weekend identified the pilot of the Super Cub as 45-year-old Jason Tucker of Wasilla. They said 44-year-old Nicholas Blaise of Chugiak was his passenger. The driver in a Seward Highway crash last month that resulted in one death and other injuries has been charged with six counts, including second-degree murder and manslaughter. KDLL's Riley Board has more. Back on July 23rd, troopers received several reports of a blue Toyota Corolla driving erratically on the Seward Highway. An affidavit says the car was swerving all over the road, passing unsafely and nearly striking pedestrians. The car evaded multiple attempted traffic stops while heading northbound on the highway, where it was driving at speeds up to 100 miles per hour. At mile 13, north of Seward City limits, the driver lost control and struck another vehicle. The driver of that struck car was taken to the hospital in Seward for his injuries, and both passengers of the Corolla were ejected. Troopers say the driver was unresponsive, and the passenger was awake but unable to move. Both were flown to an Anchorage hospital for treatment. On August 2nd, troopers say the passenger, Gregory Green, died of brain injuries related to the collision. On Monday, 29-year-old Gideon Grady of Fairbanks was charged with second-degree murder, manslaughter, two counts of first-degree assault, and two counts of failure to stop at the direction of an officer. On Tuesday, Grady was arrested by troopers in Fairbanks and taken to the Fairbanks Correctional Center. He was arraigned Wednesday afternoon in Fairbanks and has a pre-indictment hearing scheduled for August 24th in Seward. In Kenai, I'm Riley Board. For some Alaskans, the connections to Hawaii and the town of Lahaina run deep. But when wildfire ripped through the community and other parts of Maui, it knocked out the usual lines of communication causing family members in Alaska to worry when they had not heard from their loved ones. 
That's where simple sticky notes came in. Seward resident Judy Odner, owner of Zudi's Cafe, was one of the concerned family members who asked someone in Maui to post a note on a board outside an evacuation center looking for her aunt, Aunt Annie. Odner says she wasn't sure what else to do. So she's 83 and alone, and uh, we just couldn't get a hold of her, and she um, has a lot of cat colonies. Her main mission is to... Uh, get them spayed and neutered. So she has these colonies, and then she traps them and gets them spayed and neutered. And so we were just, because she is alone and she's kind of an introvert, um, we were very worried. My brother and sister live in New York, and they hadn't heard from her, and we just all kept in touch, but there was no text, there was nothing. And usually she's really good about getting in touch if, something is up she gives us a call right back and we weren't getting anything and that's when I contacted my friend who is from Alaska but lives in Maui and she was volunteering and I said could you put something up on the board so if somebody has seen Aunt Annie or heard her or seen her at Walmart or wherever Costco that they would let us know or if she's home So I kind of started putting my feelers out to find her. Yeah, and I guess it it came down to kind of a simple sticky note, right? Yeah, it was a simple note. So she had called my sister on Friday night. She went to the airport in Kahana, and apparently when she called us, she didn't have any power or cell um, service, but she was grateful to have two working flashlights so um, we could hear that bit of joy and it just brought us some some joy and just smiles that she's okay and um, she's work you know she's reaching out to her community and her community's reaching out to her and I think they're all really coming together and helping each other yeah yeah definitely it, it seems like a really tough time but that people are really coming together like that. Was there any question, I guess, you know, for you that she would, she would want to stay there or, you know, move on maybe from that place? Um, I don't know. I think, um, when she talked to my sister, she did tell my sister that she had lost property and that she had lost friends. And, um, I mean, I know it's going to affect her a lot, and I think that's going to be um, a lot for her, yeah. as it would be for anybody. But she's she's been there for probably 40 years. I guess, I, I mean, at the very least, she still has the cats, right? Absolutely. And the cats are her family. I mean, we're, we're her blood family, but... Her cats have always been there. We're my sister and brother in New York. I'm here. So um, that's her family. And and we're okay with that because we love her and we understand that. And um, we're, we're good with that. Well, I'm glad you, you were able to connect with your aunt and um, that she's okay. Yeah, I feel grateful and I'm, I'm glad she's there and the communication's real spotty and she does still go to the airport to get the two bars to just let us know every couple days that she's 
she's okay. And, yeah, the just the people and just the whole destruction of the whole town completely ashes. And um, I think... I think they have a lot more lot more people to look for. That was Judy Odner, whose Aunt Annie lives on the wildfire-ravaged island of Maui. There are different charities doing work on the island, but Odner says Alaskans hoping to help can donate to the organization Maui Strong. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by... Princess Lodges, offering glass-domed railcar tours to Talkeetna and Denali National Park for Alaska summer adventures. Your journey begins at princesslodges.com. Whether this is your first try to quit or you've been down this path before, Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line can help you quit for good. Get help creating a plan that is right for you no matter if you smoke cigarettes, vape, use smokeless tobacco, or ICMIC. With options like calling a coach, receiving text messages, and nicotine replacement therapy with patches or gum, you can quit your way at any time of day or night. Call Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line at 1-800-QUIT-NOW or visit alaskaquitline.com. This message sponsored by Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line. There could be up to five times as many streams in Alaska than previously thought. That's according to a group of scientists and programmers who have spent nearly a decade mapping the state. Lee Benda runs Terrain Works, a company that maps natural landscapes. He says many state and federal agencies rely on the National Hydrography Dataset which charts known waterways. The problem with the data sets is that the mapping accuracy is fair to poor and they lack large numbers of streams and rivers because they were drawing them from photographs and interpreting their location even under thick vegetation. So Benda's team built new maps based on cutting-edge high-resolution digital elevation data gathered by aircraft. On North Chichikoff Island, west of Juneau, uh, we discovered 518% increase in the channel length of the networks in that island based on the high-resolution digital data. It was eye-opening to see all the streams that are missing on the current maps. Benda's new maps have already revealed nearly 200,000 miles of new streams across Alaska. That's enough to go around the world seven times. And so far, they've only mapped half of the state. Benda says all of this matters for two big reasons. First, identifying fish habitat. Well, if you're going to protect fish habitat, you have to know where the habitat is. And so with the advanced mapping and the discovery of all these, what I would call missing streams, there's also missing salmon habitats that are identified as well. Secondly, there's the mapping for natural disasters like flooding. Floodplains are also mapped at the same time, so that can show you where you're exposed to flooding. And also the small tributaries coming out of the mountains are those that carry the landslide debris and hit homes on the lower gradient ground. Terrain Works is now collaborating with the U.S. Geological Survey to improve mapping in the Yukon Territory and St. Lawrence Island. They will also be working with the U.S. Forest Service in the coming months to uncover hidden streams on the islands off Prince of Wales. Objects that are culturally important to tribes in Alaska, like ceremonial masks and drums, are scattered throughout the collections of museums across the globe. A new round of federal grants will help two tribes and two museums in the state bring some items home. Coast Alaska's Angela Denning reports. 
Anthropologist and explorer Ted Banks collected items from the Aleutians in the 1940s. Some were human remains. Like human bones and skulls and jaw bones and things like that. Chris Price is the CEO of Unalaska's tribe. The Kowlungan tribe of Unalaska is receiving about $15,000. The money will help them bring back items from the Museum of the North at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Lots of different archaeologists and explorers over time have come to Unalaska and they, you know, removed uh, sacred objects, including human remains. The Kowlungan tribe plans to bring some of the items back to their island and others will stay at the museum for research. The returned remains will likely receive a ceremonial burial, depending on what the tribal council decides. Carter Price writes grants for the tribe. He says culturally, it's very important to get ancestors' remains back to their homes. He says museums and others are more understanding of that now. There has been a shift with some of these uh, organizations with wanting to return items. I think there's the recognition that housing some of these items isn't morally correct. So we're seeing more work with the tribes in trying to get the artifacts back. Alaska's grants are part of $3.4 million awarded to tribes and museums throughout the country through the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, or what's called NAGPRA. The NAGPRA law was passed by Congress in 1990. The Central Council of Tlingit and Haida Indian Tribes of Alaska is receiving two federal repatriation grants, totaling about $144,000. They've been awarded similar grants over the past three decades and have worked with museums in California, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, and Maine to return items. So far, they've repatriated more than 140 objects. They were either bought by the museums or donated from individuals that acquired them sometimes illegally. Desiree Duncan oversees the NAGPRA program for the Shlinket and Haida tribe. She says they repatriate and store the cultural items in Juneau and then loan them out to clans for memorial parties. The tribe has over 36,000 tribal members and several clans. The grants help elders and clan leaders travel to the museums where they look through archive rooms and identify items that belong to their people. Duncan says it's very moving looking at the objects and just seeing them come to life and um, being with the clan leaders and elders. And um, it's just very a very powerful uh, experience. Would you say that it's like sadness because it's been kind of in a sterile environment like that? Or is it more of a happy reunion? Well, I would say both. And it's very emotional. You go through different emotions while you're in there. She says they just repatriated a killer whale shirt from the Minnesota Museum of American Art to Juneau. And they're in the process of getting several more items back. A wolf clan mask, a ceremonial mask, shaman figure, blankets, a box drum, and totem poles that were taken from communities across Southeast. Duncan says they are grateful for the funding, which has increased over time, but it's not enough to do all the work. She says Shlinket and Haida is always looking for more opportunities to bring their culturally important items back home. Other grant recipients in Alaska include the University of Alaska Fairbanks and the Alutic Museum and Archaeological Repository in Kodiak. Reporting for Coast Alaska, in Petersburg, I'm Angela Denning.
And that's all for this edition of Alaska News Nightly. If you missed any of tonight's stories, we're online at alaskapublic.org and wherever you get your podcasts. We had reports tonight from Wesley Early in Anchorage, Robert Woolsey in Sitka, Tim Ellis in Delta Junction, Riley Board in Kenai, and Thomas Copeland and Angela Denning in Petersburg. If you want to send us a news tip, question, or comment, email us at news at alaskapublic.org. Our audio engineer is Chris Hyde, Tim Rocky is our producer, and I'm Casey Grove. Have a great weekend. Alaska needs more quality, licensed childcare providers. If you're interested in starting a childcare business, connect with ThreadAlaska.org for support and guidance. There are several resources to get licensed and launched in Alaska. A licensed facility opens doors and opportunities for the business owner and creates a safer, more engaged place for children. You can make a lasting difference in the lives of children and their families. This message sponsored by Thread. This is statewide news on Alaska Public Media.